saved. And that, Father, in your power, Lord, you have, Father, saved us, you have redeemed us, you have set us free through Jesus, Lord. We have life and we have life abundant. And, Lord, we just pray. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the fact that we have been able to just celebrate your goodness and your grace to us this day. Thank you, Father, that we can come into this place and we can just sing these wonderful songs and be reminded again of all the good things that you've given to each one of us. And now, Father, as we come to your word, Father, we pray that you would speak to us from it. Father, not for the sake of information, but for the sake of transformation, we pray through your Holy Spirit, teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Boy, that was a rumble in here, wasn't it? I felt like it was an earthquake or something. When Naomi and I first went to Kuwait in 1995, we were very excited. We were going to be pastoring the English language congregation, but one of the things that we were praying for was for the Arabic language congregation. That was another church that also met on the same compound that we met on. You see, we were praying for that Arabic language congregation because if any Arabic people, Kuwaitis, became Christians, then the, the natural place for them to go would be to that Arabic congregation. But it was a pretty small group. It had had troubles in the past, but they had just gotten a new pastor, a new Arabic pastor. He was actually an Arabic-speaking guy from Canada that had gone and was starting there. And God was beginning to do good things. And in 1996, that congregation had a revival. God just began pouring out His Spirit and doing incredible stuff. And the group just exploded in numbers. Many people were coming to Christ. Many people were getting baptized. People were just... It was just an amazing time. And it was exciting to see what God was doing. In 1996, the first Kuwaiti Muslim came to Christ and was able to go and actually attend that congregation. And so we were so excited about what was happening. But then in 1997 a problem developed. It wasn't a problem from outside. It wasn't a problem with the Muslims trying to persecute the church. It was a problem within. There was a disagreement that developed amongst the leadership. There were some from a more Presbyterian background that that didn't like the direction that the church was heading. And they started making trouble for the rest of the group. And things began to escalate. And things got worse and worse and worse. Until on one Sunday, as the church was meeting, there was a dispute that erupted in the middle of the service. People got up and actually a fist fight broke out in the middle of church, if you can believe that. One man was struck in the face by someone else's fist and his blood was shed on the front steps of the church. The police were called Charges were laid. In the months that followed, this group didn't, that didn't want this pastor to be there anymore started putting false charges against him in the courts. They started making up trouble. And we saw that church that had been going through such a wonderful time. So many had come to Christ. So many good things had happened. We saw that church literally fall apart and split. Many people who had given their lives to Christ left the church. Many of them left the church altogether, never to return. For ten years while we were there, we saw the destruction that that split had caused in that local congregation. 
You know, during the Gulf War, it said that more people died of friendly fire than died of enemy fire. That means more people died from people that were on your side than on the enemy side. And unfortunately, sometimes the church can be a little bit like that. Unfortunately, sometimes the greatest resistance to growth, the greatest resistance, when God comes, and the book of Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding, the people were excited, things were happening, the wall was going up. But as we talked about last week, as the wall was going up, people on the outside started to oppose the work. But they dealt with that. But even after they dealt with the opposition from outside the walls, then opposition arose from inside the walls. And unfortunately, today, most opposition to church growth doesn't come from the world around us. It comes from within the body of Christ. You know, I went to seminary. I had a bunch of friends in seminary. They went to the same classes as I went to. They took the same courses that I, went out, I did. We went off to different churches after he graduated. Can I say to you that a lot of the guys that I graduated seminary with are not in ministry today. In fact, most of them didn't even last two years in ministry. Why? Because they had learned how to teach the Bible. They had learned how to minister to kids. They had learned how to, how, to, how to be a pastor. But they weren't prepared for church politics. They weren't prepared for the fact that so many churches today have so much infighting and so much conflict within. Now, I want to give just a little bit of a a disclaimer to this message today, okay? I am preaching this message today because it's in the series. And when I'm talking about unity, I'm not saying that we're not, as a church, united. I want to say that right off the start. I praise God for the fact that God has given us a very united church. I thank God for the board of elders and the unity that there is in that leadership team. I thank God for this congregation and the unity that we share as a church, that we have a common vision and a common purpose as we are moving forward. But I want to say today that disunity within the church is perhaps the greatest obstacle to building that the church of today faces. Let's turn our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Nehemiah 5, 1 says this, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. 
and said, As far as it is possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending money to the people and for grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. So let me just summarize what this passage says. The people were rebuilding the wall. They were facing opposition from the outside. But you know what? That had been taken care of. They had set up the soldiers. We had talked last week about all the different things they did to protect themselves as the walls of the city went up. But then there was a problem. You see, this was a long-term building program. This wasn't something that just took a weekend. As the people were building, they were having to take time that they would have been putting into their fields, they would have been putting into their harvest, and they were having to spend all their time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, working on the walls of the city. And because of that, they weren't earning enough money to make a living. They weren't making anything to live on. They didn't have any food. And so there were rich people, and the rich people were saying, okay, here, we'll give you some food, but you know what? You owe me. And not only that, not only were they borrowing them the, 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 the food, but they were also charging a very high interest rate. So the people were just, it was impossible for them to pay it back. And because they had no money to pay it back, they were having to sell their own children, their own sons and their own daughters into slavery in order to pay the great debt that they had. The problem wasn't coming from outside the walls. The problem was coming from inside the walls, from within the Jewish community itself. Like I've said, you know, sometimes as churches, the greatest opposition we face is not from outside. It's not from the world around us. It's from the people within the very body of Christ, from within the same family. Often in movies, they have this common plot where you'll have someone and the person's running from something, running from a monster, running from a dinosaur, whatever it is, they're running. And maybe they're out in the woods somewhere and it's dark and it's scary. And as they're running through the woods, they're thinking to themselves, if I can only get to that house in the distance, there's a light on the hill, that's a house, and if I can just get to that house, I'm going to be safe. And so they run and they run and they run, and finally they go running through the front doors of the house and they close the door behind them and they lock the door and they think, Oh, now I'm safe. But of course, the monster's already in the house. You know, duh. Often as Christians, we're the same way. We come from hard weeks dealing with bosses that we don't like and working with people that we don't like and we hear all the swearing and the foul language and the cursing and we come out of difficult relationships and we come out of problems here and we come out of problems here and we think, if only I can just make it to the weekend. If only I can just make it to church on Sunday, everything is going to be good because church is safe, because church is perfect, because when I get to church, everything is wonderful. And then we get to church and we let our guard down. But then we forget that church isn't a country club for the perfect. The church is a hospital for the sick. 
And there is no such thing as a perfect church because church is made up of sinful people, just like me, just like you. And sometimes there are conflicts. And sometimes there are problems. But the problems we face in church hurt us the most because we're not expecting them. Because we let our guard down. So what does Nehemiah say? How do you deal with conflicts in the church when they develop? Nehemiah says this. Number one, remember, when conflicts develop, remember that we are family. We are family. Let me just look across this room. We are family. And when I say we are family, I don't mean that in the fact that you have a lot of uncles and aunts here, okay? That's not the family I mean. I mean that we are all part of the body of Christ. All of us are family. Whether or not you have a lot of relatives here or whether or not you're the only one. You know, we are all family. We are all part of the body of Christ. That we're all children of God. We're family. And what hurts One member of the family hurts all the family. So what Nehemiah is saying here is that, look, people, if you hurt part of the body, the entire body suffers. Remember, don't make waves in the body of Christ because if you hurt one, you hurt yourself ultimately. The issue here was that Jewish people were hurting other Jewish people. When Naomi and I lived on the Dulos, we spent two years on a ship. It was about 300 feet long. That may seem large, but can I tell you, spending two years on something that's only 300 feet long, it becomes very, very small over time. And there, there were like 300 people that lived on this ship. And they were from all kinds of different cultures and all kinds of different nationalities. And I don't know who it was that, that would sit down and put down who would go into the cabins with each other. But I think when they did it, they did it just to make sure that there was always going to be conflict. Because, you know, they'd, they'd take a, a white South African and put them with a Nigerian, you know, that whole apartheid thing. And then they'd take, you know, someone from Germany and put them with someone from Holland, you know, just so that they could sit around and reminisce about the war together. And they'd take someone from America and put them with someone from Japan, just, you know, again, so they could reminisce a little bit about the war together. And it seemed like, as people went into all these cabins, it was like, well, why don't you just put all the Americans together? Put all the Canadians together. Put all of this together. But they didn't do that. Why? Because they knew and they understood that conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable. But can I tell you one thing that we learned on that ship is that if you had a problem with someone, you had better deal with that problem quickly because you are going to be eating with that person, you are going to be sleeping beside that person, you are going to be working with that person 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. There was nowhere on the ship that you could hide. And believe me, a lot of people tried. But since there was nowhere to run, since there was nowhere to hide, you had better deal with the issues that you had. And you'd better deal with them quickly. And can I say to us, as the family of God, look at the person beside you. You are going to be stuck with that person for the rest of eternity. You are going to be looking at that person a hundred billion trillion years from today. All right? Because if that person is a Christian and you are a Christian, guess what? You're going to the same place. 
So you can try to run from that person and hide from that person here on earth, but you can't when you get to heaven. You are stuck with that person forever. And I think it's really funny that here on earth we think, oh, well, I don't like this. I get in a conflict in this church, so the easiest thing to do is to just run and go to another church. Well, that, that doesn't solve anything. That just puts off the issue. We're family. We're stuck together. You can't run from your problems. So, deal with them. If conflict develops, deal with it. People sometimes ask, why do we have membership in a church? I mean, we have some people going through baptism classes that are going to become members of the church afterwards. We have other people that are, are wanting to come into membership in the church. What does membership really mean? What, what is membership? Is membership just mean that you put your name in a book so that you can vote at meetings? That is not what church membership means. If you want to understand church membership, let me give you something to compare it to. There are some people in this church that, that own their own businesses and they have their own children working in those businesses. It's kind of like owning your own business and the difference between having a child in the business or having an employee in the business. John 10:12 says this, The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand doesn't, if a wolf starts coming, the hired hand thinks, you know what, I can either make my $10 a day tending sheep or I can save my life and run. So guess what he chooses? He chooses to run. During the Gulf War, when the Iraqi tanks were coming down towards Kuwait, Kuwait had an army. They had their own tanks. They had their own military. It was all lined up on the border. They were in their jeeps. They had their binoculars out. The soldiers saw the Iraqi tanks coming down towards them. And what did they do? Did they fight to the bitter end? Fight to the last man? Are you kidding me? They saw the tanks coming and they thought, I'm out of here. And they headed for the Saudi border. They were the first ones out of the country. Why? Because none of them were Kuwaitis. They were all hired as soldiers. They were hired to defend the country. But I mean, if you're sitting there out in the middle of the desert and you see a hundred tanks flying towards you and you think to yourself, let's see, I'm making a hundred dollars a month. As a soldier, I can stand here and fight or I can run away. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to run away. Because they have nothing invested. They have nothing to lose except a job they don't like anyways. How does that translate into church membership? Let me ask you a question. Are you a servant or are you a son and a daughter of this church? A servant or a son or a daughter? Let me give you the difference. Kids know that they will inherit the family business. Kids know that the family business, if the family business falls, they fall. So they will do everything they can to make sure that it succeeds. If you have a child that's in the business with you, if you own your own business, you know that sometimes if you start at nine, you can't end at five. You've got to keep on going. But you know what? Employees don't know that. An employee says, no, you hired me. I start work here. I end work here. That's it. It's over. 
And you know what? If the business goes, who cares? I'll just go get myself another job somewhere else. They don't care about the business. But a son or a daughter does. Likewise, do you care if the church falls? Is your mindset is, oh, if there's problems here, I'll just go somewhere else. Or do you say, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we work things out. Son and daughters defend the house. They look out for it. A son or a daughter is walking in the family business and they see a piece of garbage laying on the ground. What do they do? They lean down and they pick the piece of garbage up. Why? Because a messy business reflects the family. An employee doesn't. An employee walks past a piece of garbage and says, oh, that's not my job. Let someone else pick it up. They're not paying me to pick up trash. I always love it as a church to see people come in on Sunday and to see them kind of looking around and they see something kind of out of place and they go, oh, well, let me, let me fix that. I'll fix that table a little bit and change the flowers. They're not quite right. And, oh, there's a piece of garbage over there in the corner. Let's pick that up and put that up on the thing. Do they have to do that? No. But they know that a messy church reflects poorly upon them because it's my church. It's our church. Sons and daughters use words like we, our, us. Employees use words like theirs, them. You ask people, so how's your church? Oh, well, they're a pretty good bunch. Or, we're a great bunch. See the language? When you talk about this church, how do you talk about it? Sons and daughters can take discipline. Sons and daughters come into the family small. They have puppy feet. You know what that means? You know what a, you get a little puppy and it has great big feet. You know that someday this is going to be a big dog, right? Sons and daughters come into a family not fully grown. They learn. They take discipline. But employees come into a business fully grown. Employees often don't take criticism. They don't take discipline very well. And yet sons and daughters do. Do you take discipline well? So let me ask you a question. When it comes to this church, what are you? Are you a son or a daughter? Or are you a servant? Is this your church? Is this your family? Or is this their family? Remember, we're family, number one. But number two, Nehemiah says, remember the task. Remember the task. And he begins to set the vision again before the people. He says to the people, look, you nobles, you rich people, this is what you're doing. You are enslaving people. We're over here trying to move and build this wall so that we will be free, but you're putting people into slavery. So you understand? This is what we're trying to do, and this is what you're doing. You are doing the exact opposite of what we are trying to do. And so he reminds these people of what it is they're trying to accomplish. He brings them back to the core of their vision. And you know what? Likewise, we as a church need to constantly reflect upon and think about the vision that we have. 
What is our mission? What are we spending our energy on? Where, are, where is our direction? Because I'll tell you what, as Christians, we only have a certain amount of energy that God gives us. And if you are not using that energy looking outward, guess what happens? That energy is funneled back inward. Max Licato puts it this way. When fishermen don't fish, they fight. He tells a story that once he had some buddies and they decided to go fishing. They went up to this little cabin and they got in late. But they're thinking to themselves, the next morning we're going fishing. We got our fishing poles, we got our tackle boxes, we're ready to go. And the next morning came and it was raining out. And all day long it rained. But you know what? It's okay. It was only the first day. They had a whole week there. No problem. Tomorrow will be a better day. And they woke up the next day and it was still raining. And by the second day, they were starting to get a little antsy, starting to get a bit of cabin fever. You know, they were starting to notice little quirks in each other, the way the one person would always kind of chew with his mouth open, and how the other guy snored in his sleep. And you know what? They're, they're good friends. They were there to fish, but, you know, they were starting to bug each other. And so the third day, now it's torrential downpour out. Okay? Again, another day where they can't get out fishing. And now they're really starting to drive each other crazy. And by the fourth day, there was still rain. They got in their car and they drove home. Angry at each other. Mad at each other. Why? Because when fishermen don't fish, they fight. When you take your energy and you can't use the energy in the passion and in the gifts that God has given you to use, if you don't use it out there, you will direct all that energy inward. And even little things, little tiny things, will become important. That's why you look at some churches and they argue about such little things getting these big fights about little tiny things. I was in a church that was split. The church split because of the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. And I thought to myself, tragic. But you know what? It was a prime example of a church that wasn't doing anything outward. It had focused its attention inward. And because of that, every little issue became a mountain. So what do you do? You focus on your vision. People who are rowing the boat don't have time to rock it. Right? And people who are actively pursuing the vision and the gift and the ministry that God has given them don't have time for causing trouble. In Kuwait, we were in a church of 4,000 people. We had 60 different nationalities. We had, I don't know how many denominations. You would have an Anglican sitting there, you know, a British Anglican sitting there next to a Nigerian Pentecostal, sitting next to a, a Romanian you know, Lutheran, sitting next to uh, someone else, and, and it was just all these, these nationalities and languages, and, and, and someone once said to me, how is it that you as a church can even operate all the different nationalities and denominations together? I mean, aren't you always in disagreements? And when the person said that, I thought to myself, and I thought, you know what? In ten years of being in this church, I don't think I've ever been in a disagreement with someone. I don't think there's ever been an argument. I don't think even at a leadership level we have ever had even a serious problem. What's the reason? Because we knew that we were in a Muslim nation. 
We were a small minority in a very big country that was against us. And that we knew that God had given us a vision and God had given us a mission. And we didn't spend time worrying about little stuff. We were focusing on big stuff. The big picture. North America is not like that. The North American church is a consumer-driven church. What does that mean? That means that, you know what? I'm going to go where my needs get met. And I am not saying here this morning that your needs are not important. But what I'm saying is this, that so many people have this mentality. Oh, I'll just go here, and I'll get what I can get from here. And you know what? As long as I'm happy, it's okay. But as soon as I'm not happy, I'm going over here. And then I'm going to grab some from over here. And then maybe I'll get some from over here as well. Maybe, you know, I'll I'll alternate. I'll go here one week and here the next week, but then they have a special program here, so I'm going to go here and get some from there. And you just jump from place to place to place to place, hoping that your needs get met, you know, taking in some from here and taking in some from there. The problem is that does not produce mature Christians. Because it's consumer-based. You get into the mindset that the church exists for you. The church doesn't exist for you. The church exists for Christ. Worship is not about you. Worship is all about Jesus. Now what am I saying? Am I saying that you should never leave a church? I'm not saying that either. There are times when you leave a church. But you know what the time to leave a church is? Oh, well, I came to church and nobody said hi to me this morning. So that means I'm going. You know what? It's a terrible reason to leave a church. If you think the church is cold and uncaring, then, then join the, the ushers. Then get involved in the welcoming committee. Do something about it. You know, there are, there are ways of helping in that. Oh, well, I didn't agree with Pastor Steve's teaching this morning, so I'm leaving. I'm never going back there again. Well, if you have a problem with something that's said, approach the pastor, approach the leadership, you know. Maybe, maybe it was just a misunderstanding of something that was said. Well, uh, you know, this, they have this, uh, the, the temperature is too cold, and they don't sing the right worship songs, or this or that, you know. I'm, no, terrible reasons to leave a church. You know what a good reason to leave a church is? What is the vision and the direction? What is the church trying to accomplish? If the church says, we as a church are heading in this direction. This is our goal. This is our mission. This is what we're trying to do in the community. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And if you, as you look at that, say, you know what? I can't line up with that. I can't agree with that. That's not where I'm going. Well, that's when you maybe think about it. And go to a place where you can line up with its vision and where its direction. But... The important thing is here is that it's not just, you'll never find a perfect church. If you think you're going to jump to a church and jump to this church and jump to that church, it doesn't exist. Perfect churches don't exist. It's much better to find one where you can use your gifts. Find one where you can follow your heart. Find one that's going in an exciting direction and get on board and get involved. Remember that we're family, number one. Remember the task, number two. And thirdly, remember that others are watching. Always, always watching. Before you ever point to problems in a church, you should be willing to be part of the solution. 
But remember that conflict is always seen. And conflict always hurts someone. Always. People are watching you. If someone who works with you knows that you are a Christian, then that person looks at you and they evaluate Jesus Christ based on the way that you live your life. You are a representative of Jesus. You are an ambassador of Christ wherever you go. An ambassador means a representative. And so if someone looks at you, and if your life is inconsistent, if your life is full of all kinds of nasty stuff, and you're swearing, and you're doing this, and you're doing that, and someone looks at your life, and they think, oh, that person's a Christian? Well, I don't want to be one of them. Conflict number one hurts your reputation. Churches that are divided, churches that are divisive, that have problems. I gave the example of the Arabic church. I tell you, for 10 years, that problem in the Arabic church has been dragged through the courts of Kuwait and it has left such a bad taste in the mouth of the Kuwaiti people. I'll be out getting my car fixed. I'll be sitting in a, in a garage getting my car fixed and there'll be a Kuwaiti man sitting next to you. And he'll ask me, oh, what do you do? And I'll say, oh, I'm a pastor. And he says, oh, you're a pastor. Oh, do you know that church that meets down in the city, that Arabic church that has all the problems, they're taking each other to court, and they're doing this and they're doing that? Oh, I would never want to be a Christian. Ah, I can't believe how how awful Christians are to, to, to treat one another that way and to do those awful things to each other. Oh, we as Muslims never have these kind of problems. I kind of laugh at that because Muslims are killing each other all the time, but they don't think ever think about that. But, you know, I... It reflects negatively. It destroys your witness. Just look in the media. Every time there's another church that splits, the media picks up on it immediately. Every time there's a pastor that falls, does something stupid, do they sweep it under the carpet? No, the media's right there and they're going to make sure it's front page. You watch television and they're constantly, constantly ridiculing the name of Christ, making fun of the church. And nine times out of ten, it's because of divisiveness. The world is watching. Conflict hurts our reputation. It destroys our witness, number one. Number two, conflict hurts our relationships. Conflict hurts. You know who it it hurts the most? It hurts our children because our children are watching. Again, I praise God for the unity that we have as a church, but I know of other churches that have split. You look at the generation of children that go through church splits and you follow what happens to them, a lot of them leave the church for good. I pastored a church as a youth pastor many years ago. And Naomi and I left that church. We were gone there for a number of years. But years after we had been in that church, there was a split. And some of the kids that had been in the youth group during that time were still there at that church when it went through that split. I tell you, I look at some of their lives. And they are gone. They are out of the church. They are nowhere to be found. And the problem was that that church split left such a negative taste in their mouth that they just left the church for good. Conflict in the church hurts our children. It drives them from Christ. 
And so as adults, we need to be very, very careful. Adults, you need to be very, very careful. Parents, as you're sitting around the table and you start bad-mouthing something about the church, you don't realize that your children are sitting there at that same table listening to those words that are coming out of your mouth? What do you think your kids are going to start thinking about the church? Conflict hurts our reputation. It hurts our relationships. And can I tell you lastly, conflict hurts our Redeemer. It hurts Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. People have misunderstood this verse to mean that this is God's temple, and if you destroy this temple, then, then that's not a very good thing. But that's not what this context is saying. In the context of this passage, it's talking about unity. It says that you yourselves, plural, all of you, are God's temples. No, it says you are God's temple, singular. That we are all part of God's church. And if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. For God's church is sacred, and you are that church. In other words, if you are a person who brings divisiveness, and who brings division, and who brings problems into the body of Christ, you had better be very, very careful. Let me say this to you in a different way. I'm a, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I mean, I'm, I'm a peaceful guy. You can say, Pastor Steve, I don't like you. And I'll say, God bless you. <laughs> it's all right. A lot of people don't like me. Pastor Steve, you had a lot of bad habits. You go like this with your arms all the time when you preach, and it looks funny. I know, it's a, it's a habit I've gotten into, and, you know, I'm sorry, you know. And I don't like the things you talk about on Sunday. I know, well, sometimes I really blow it and I miss points and I'm, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm, and I don't like this and I don't like this. That's okay. And I don't like your wife. What? <laughs> what? You can come after me. You can insult me. You can spit on me. You can punch me. Ah, that's okay. But you don't touch my kids. And you do not touch my wife. You do not touch my bride. You do not touch my children. I'm sorry. How many guys in here would say the same thing? I mean, it's okay. You, you can mess with me, but you do not mess with my kids. You do not mess with my wife. And do you not think that Jesus Christ doesn't think the same thing? Do you not think that Jesus Christ sits in heaven and he says, oh, you can, you can spit on me and you can say negative things against me and you can curse me to my face. I'm a big boy. I can deal with that. But you touch my kids, you touch my bride, you come against my church that I died for, that I hung on a cross for, you come against it. And let me tell you, the gloves are off. You seek to destroy my church and I will destroy you. For that church is sacred. It's sacred because it was bought and it was paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He gave his life for it. He died for it. And so before you stand up and seek to split the church of God, you had better be very, very careful. And you had better think about it long and hard. 
to bring an accusation, to bring divisiveness, to bring conflict into the church of God is a scary, scary thing. Ten little Christians. Ten little Christians standing in a line. One disliked the preacher, so then there were nine. Nine little Christians stayed up very late, but one overslept, and so there were eight. Eight little Christians on their way to heaven. One took another road, so then there were seven. Seven little Christians chirping like chicks. One disliked the music, so then there were six. Six little Christians seemed very much alive, but one lost interest, and then there were five. Five little Christians pulling for heaven's shore, but one stopped to rest, and then there were four. Four little Christians, each busy like a bee, but one got his feelings hurt, so then there were three. Three little Christians knew not what to do. One joined another crowd, and then there were two. Two little Christians, our rhyme is nearly done, differed from each other, so then there was one. One little Christian, can't do much, is true. But he brought his friend to Bible study, and then there were two. Two little Christians, each one one more, and that doubled the number, so then there were four. Four sincere Christians worked early and late, each one another, and then there were eight. Eight splendid little Christians, and if they doubled like before, in just so many Sundays, there'd be a thousand twenty-four. In this little jingle, there is a lesson true. You're either on the building or the wrecking crew. So which are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this book of Nehemiah. It's a book about rebuilding. And Father, as we seek to rebuild a broken world, Father, as we seek to be the church that you want us to be, as we seek, Lord, to move forward with the vision and with the direction and with the excitement that you've called us to, Father, we recognize that there will always be obstacles to building. Sometimes those obstacles will come from the outside. And Father God, I pray for protection against the evil one. I pray, Lord, that you would put a hedge of protection around this church and around the couples, the families, the children of this church. That, God, you would help protect each one of us, Lord, and keep us safe against the evil one. But, Father God, I also pray for protection from within the walls of the church. Father, that you would help us to have a like-mindedness in Christ. That, Father, we would remember that we are brothers and sisters, that we are going to spend eternity with one another. And, Father God, we need to learn to get along with one another. That, Father, you would remind us again that there's a bigger purpose, that there's a bigger vision, that there's a task you've given for us as a church to accomplish. And that, Father, that task, that overarching purchase, purpose, Father, is, is, is greater than our own petty little differences. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to work with each other. As your word says, the world will know that we're Christians by our love. As we love one another, as we walk side by side with one another, as we agree to disagree sometimes, but to work forward together, arm in arm, because of the greater purpose of God, that, Father, the world would see our unity, that they would see our joy, that they would see it, and that they would be drawn to it and be saved through it. 
Thank you, Father God, for this. We thank you, Father, for this local, fellow, this local community of faith. And I pray, Father, for your blessing upon each one of us as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.